Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. I think that it's really important to think of it as craft, to constantly be em employing your skills, right? Like I think people that they see documentary films and they don't have a filmmaking background, they think that's what I want to do. And I had that same thought and I had that thought 15 years ago and now I've worked every day for 15 years to try to like hone the skills and be as good at this as I can. You know, it's like like training for climbing a mountain. Every day you just need to do something to, to enhance your craft and, and be better at it. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life. This is a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 131, and it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film and the Documentary Life podcast. So it's been around 13 weeks since we relocated back to the States from Asia, and it's now been around 10 weeks since most of us here in the U.S. have been in lockdown with stay-at-home orders. Things are slowly starting to open up here. More people outside. Shops opening up for limited business. I even saw a small camera crew down the street from me last week. And speaking of, I've had four shoots myself in the past two weeks, which is four more than I'd had the previous nine. That being said, the majority of me and my family's time is most certainly being spent at home. Steph and I have had a schedule which we've tried to adhere to, sometimes more successfully than others. It's basically a two hours on, two hours off kind of schedules. The two hours on is when we get to go off to another room and work, and the other two hours is spent with the kids, either doing some schooling or outside getting some of their pent-up energy resolved. And then, of course, when the kids are off to bed, we can get in a few more hours to do whatever we'd like. For me, it's usually watching a documentary or editing on Elvis of Cambodia or working on a new project that a close friend and I have been developing steadily over the past couple of months. It's a film that both of us are becoming increasingly involved in, and certainly very excited about. I won't say an awful lot about it here, other than it involves a healthy mixture of personal and societal transformation during times of crises. It involves a leader of a community, and it involves a certain amount of self-reflection from the viewer of the film. I think that I've probably mentioned to you in the past the importance of developing multiple projects at once. That the overlapping of these projects is not only okay, but a necessity if you want to be sustaining yourself working in documentary. It's not easy, of course. It can be a bit tricky juggling projects, developing ones while shooting or editing on another. Believe me, I've struggled with this myself, to determine where my energy should be. Should it be on the project that I'm editing? Should it be on this great new idea that I came up with last week? Should it be on this thing that a company wants to pay me to do? It's a delicate balance for sure. But like I said, it's a necessary one for the doc filmmaker hoping to make something sustainable out of their doc life. And if nothing else, it's necessary if you want to continue making doc films without long periods of time between them. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So I'd like to start today's show off with some reasons that you should be developing multiple documentaries at the same time. The first reason you should be doing this is to get a breath of fresh air. The initial argument against developing another project while you're working on your current one 
is that it distracts you from the ladder. It takes energies away from potentially finishing the current. Makes sense, right? Don't start one project before finishing another. But I'm going to argue that when done right and smartly, developing other projects can actually reinvigorate your other project, which you've been working on since, you know, time began, in my case, Elvis of Cambodia. By taking a bit of a breather from the project that you've been banging on since before your child was born, literally the case for Steph and I, by the way, you allow yourself to take a moment to reflect on the work that you've been doing and give some energies to something else. When you give your energies to something else, it can bring your excitement level back up for the older project. And we all could use a bit of that when we've been laboring on the other project for so long. The mind needs to recharge. It needs to open up and bend to something else for a little while. So that when you do return to your shoot, or more likely the editing of your project, you will come to it with a renewed sense of excitement that may have been previously missing. I'm of course not suggesting that you completely step away from one project and then just go full bore on a new one, so much so that you never really return to the other project. Because by the way, that can happen, so you want to be mindful of this. But what I am saying here is that by thinking on and developing another project, you can actually be helping your original project that you'd previously lost some love for, and you can pick it back up with a new rejuvenated spirit for the project. The second reason that you should be developing other projects, which I alluded to earlier, is to avoid giant lag times between projects. If you're developing multiple projects while filming and or editing on others, you will be giving yourself the best chance to simply step from one finished project to working on the next one, and then the next one. Now, of course, you may not be interested in this at all. You may be saying, hell no, I want some downtime between my projects. Time to reflect on what I've just experienced with one before, you know, moving on to the next. And I don't disagree with you here. It's good, healthy, and necessary to take some time off and to be able to process what you've just gone through before moving on to the next film. I'm saying that you can and should do that, but that when you are ready to begin work on your next film, you're not starting from scratch. You're not starting from the ideation phase. You're not thinking about what kind of film you'd like to do next. If you've been developing a project or multiple projects while you've been finishing up on another one, you'll have already been researching, writing treatments, talking to potential experts, thinking about audiences for the film, etc., etc. So that when you are ready to get working on your next project, you can simply get right to it. You'll essentially be maximizing your time in a way that allows you to truly get straight to working on your next film, without the dreaded lag time. Another reason to be developing films and working on other films simultaneously is if you want to be sustaining yourself with your documentary film work. It's hard enough, period, to sustain yourself in this industry. But you're really stacking the odds against yourself if you're not developing a number of projects at once, because these other projects are often the ones that are enabling you to have a roof over your head and put food on the table. Oftentimes, doc filmmakers are raising funding for other projects that they are developing while they are working on other projects at the same time. And it's not unusual at all that the funding from the ones in development are keeping the doc filmmakers afloat while they work on the current ones. 
This, in fact, is how Philly doc filmmakers Don Argo and Sheena M. Joyce are able to sustain their doc lives. We had the two of them on the show back in episode 107. These two are constantly hustling and moving and shaking and going back and forth between projects all of the time. And it's through the funding and budgeting of multiple films that they are able to make a living for themselves. Steve James does the same thing. So does recent Academy Award winners Stephen Bognar and Julia Reichert. This is one of the keys to actually carving out a career for ourselves as doc filmmakers. I've yet to make it happen myself, you know, make my living by my doc films alone. But I'm determined to do so, or at least get close to it. If it's something that you seriously want to do, there are ways to do it. People are doing it, no matter how many people tell you otherwise. The final reason that I think you should be developing multiple projects at once is because it allows you to get closer to making the films that you ought to be making. The films that you'll be passionate about and will define your career as a dog filmmaker. What I mean by this is that I think most of us don't necessarily know from the very beginning what kinds of films we most want to be making. We kind of define these along the way. Not unlike our doc films themselves, it's a process of discovery, isn't it? The more films that we develop, the more that we can define both who we are as doc filmmakers as well as the kinds of films that we want to be making. Like the sculptor who steadily keeps chipping away at the rock, eventually the form begins to reveal itself. It's the same with our doc films. And I just don't think that the majority of us know precisely the films that we want our body of work to be defined by, you know, from the very beginning. It's what Maury Warshawski, the author of Shaking the Money Tree and two-time guest on the show, is talking about when he speaks of doing the work of self-discovery to fully understand things like your core values or your mission statement so that you can embrace the projects that you want to align yourself with and turn away the projects that might simply sap your energy and maybe even waste your time that could have been better spent on the projects that are really suited for you and in turn for your audience. Developing multiple doc projects will most certainly help you better define the projects that you really want to work on and should be working on, and certainly in a much more efficient way than simply defining these things by making the doc films. Because as a number of us have probably discovered the hard way, when you find yourself working on a doc project that you no longer really feel like is a project that you want to be working on, well, that's a pretty low feeling, and it's also a complete drag to be doing. Better to be figuring these things out in the development stage of doc filmmaking. So those are some reasons you might consider if you're thinking about other doc projects while working on your current one. I really do think that it's not only a worthy cause, but I think that it's the appropriate one if making doc films is something that you know that you want to keep doing. On the day of the release of this show, it is May 29th, a day that is now recognized as International Everest Day. May 29th being the day of the first ever summit of Mount Everest by Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa in 1953. This year marks the 67th since that remarkable achievement. To help celebrate this, next up on the show, we'll be talking with mountaineer and documentary filmmaker Eric Becker and we'll be discussing his most recent documentary, the award-winning Return to Mount Kennedy, where the sons of Senator Bobby Kennedy and climbing hero Jim Whitaker returned to scale Mount Kennedy, 50 years after their father's groundbreaking ascent of the mountain. That's all coming up next 
here on The Documentary Life. Over the last few years, as we've met and connected with more and more doc lifers, we've been asked what the most comprehensive doc filmmaking course out there is. The truth is, we didn't believe there was one. There are plenty of videos and some courses that walk you through some technical aspects of filmmaking and workshops that cover some of the business aspects, but there was nothing that specifically took the doc filmmaker through the whole actual doc filmmaking journey, both creative and business, from A to Z. That is, until we created one. The Documentary Academy is the only all-in-one online documentary film production course that actually starts from the beginning of your film's journey, from story conception, through pre-production and actual production, to post-production, and through to the promotions, marketing, and distribution of your film. The Academy will help you make your most successful documentary film by guiding you on the journey from conception to launch. But don't just take our word for it. Have a look for yourself by going to thedocumentarylife.com academy and discover everything that the Academy has to offer, including a video that takes you inside the Academy for a look around. The Documentary Academy has already greatly helped others realize their power and potential as doc filmmakers. Why not be the next person who brings an awesome documentary film to life? Head on over to thedocumentarylife.com academy today, and we'll see you there. Eric Becker is an Emmy Award-winning director based in Seattle, Washington in the U.S. His work seeks to create an emotional connection between the viewer and subject through intimate, authentic portraiture and storytelling. His pieces have been seen in festivals, on television, and online. And he is the founder and owner of We Are Shouting, a commercial production company in Seattle that provides work to a range of clients, both domestic and international, including Amazon, Nike, Skanska, Phase One, and Timex. Eric's documentary work strives to communicate issues of social justice, conservation, and human rights. His latest documentary is the film Return to Mount Kennedy. It is a film that we will be getting to here uh, shortly. First of all, let me welcome Eric Becker to the program. Thanks for joining us today on The Documentary Life, Eric. Thanks for having me, Chris. So why don't you give us a brief idea of how documentary film came into your life? Sure, yeah. I was doing public health work in college and working a lot in rural Nicaragua and decided at one point that it would be maybe interesting to figure out a way to do some film kind of storytelling uh, about the work that these doctors were doing down there. So my buddy Henry basically convinced me to to hire him to um, go down with me for a month and shoot a bunch of stuff uh, and try to pull together like a short film. Um, we like failed completely miserably. We never did anything with the footage. It was all garbage. Um, <laughs> and it's still like in a box in my house somewhere. But it was like the easiest, cheapest way to learn the things not to do on a documentary film. Yeah. After that, I moved to Los Angeles and got hired to do some work in television and kind of learned how to do more proper producing and, and then got hired to work on a uh, film about grassroots peace and reconciliation in Sierra Leone and made a number of trips uh. to uh, rural Sierra Leone to um, film that project. So uh, I got to like basically cut my teeth working on doc projects, didn't go to film school. 
um, and like learned out in the world kind of doing the doing the filmmaking itself. Although, you, you know, you said that you didn't finish the project that you had set out to do in Nicaragua. Obviously, there was something about that time spent working there and working in documentary uh, that kind of kept you in the game more more so that you made a commitment to it by moving to L.A. and, and working in film. What was it about that experience that uh, really spoke to you in documentary? Yeah, I mean, I think like when every everyone that gets started when they're young, um, they just kind of see the magic of of turning uh, what's in front of you into like a story that you can communicate. Um, and then I've always been like kind of a geeky technical person. So I've always liked the troubleshooting of trying to understand how you use technology to, to do those things. So um, I was just like really into the magic of it all. And of course, liked the adventure. I love traveling. I love seeing new things. Um, I love I always kind of loved going into situations that were maybe a little sketchy too. <laughs> you and I both. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I got hooked early on, I think, yeah. um, of wanting to use film as a way to not only like travel the world, but as a way to, I guess, learn about things that maybe you would have no reason to otherwise. You're speaking my language. I love that. So your current film, Return to Mount Kennedy, has just recently been released for distribution. Tell us a bit about what the film is about, and and then we'll have a discussion about Return to Mount Kennedy. Yeah. So in 1965, Jim Whitaker, who was sort of a famous, iconic American mountaineer, the first American to summit Mount Everest, longtime CEO of REI, uh, he was hired to take Bobby Kennedy, at that point, uh, Senator Bobby Kennedy, to the top of a, a remote mountain in the Canadian Yukon that had been named after Bobby's assassinated brother, JFK. So we went back uh, 50 years later with two sons of Jim Whitaker and a son of Bobby Kennedy to redo the expedition that they had done 50 years ago. But the film really follows uh, Bob Whitaker, Jim Whitaker's middle son, who's never been a mountain climber and at the age of 48 decided to really spearhead this expedition. Bob is like, he's kind of the last person you'd think that would want to go try to climb a remote mountain in the Canadian Yukon. He comes from a, a music background. He actually was like a big figure in the Seattle grunge scene. So the film really follows Bob on his journey to uh, put together the expedition, train for it, and then go kind of uh, uh, make this attempt on this mountain. So I don't know if you're an outdoor person or not, uh, but I, of course, being based in the Pacific Northwest, I feel like uh, there's going to be some connections there. I myself lived in Portland, Oregon for about 25 years. Uh, I'm curious, what about the material material of this film, what was it that spoke to you? Uh, what is your connection to the subject matter or the people in the film? Yeah, I mean, I've always been an outdoors guy. I just, I grew up in Texas in like a, a smaller town. There was like a lot of, a lot of woods, a lot of outdoor area. Um, so I really just kind of grew up around, around nature all the time. Um, I've never been a hardcore mountain climber, but I've always enjoyed being in the mountains and I've always enjoyed camping and doing, you know, stuff in the backcountry. So the, the, the like love of nature has always been there for me. And a lot of the projects I've done have some aspect of that. Also, just from a purely aesthetic standpoint, I mean, this is why we see so much stuff these days um, about the outdoors is it's pretty, right? Like it's easy to make it look good. So um, I think with this film, it is a mountain climbing film, but it's also not really a mountain climbing film. Right, it's, not, right. it's not free solo, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's it, my my desire with this piece was to have it like steeped in the outdoors and steeped in mountain climbing culture, but 
to really like bring something new to the genre where it's more about politics and history and human connection than uh, being just a piece about people trying to go climb a mountain. Why do you think Bob wants to climb up Kennedy? Introduce yourself, what's your name? My name is Bob Whitaker. I'm 48 years old, Leo. How do you get the name Bob? I'm named after a good friend of my father's, uh, Bobby Kennedy. He's my namesake. Who's my dad? Yeah. Jim Whitaker, first American to climb Mount Everest, Seattle luminary, CEO of REI, worked there for 25 years. Jim Whitaker was Mr. Mountain, I mean, Mount Rainier, he'd been on Everest, so when you talk about mountains, you talked about Jim Whitaker. After so many years and so much climbing around this area, why has Mount Kennedy been left? It's uh, inaccessible. Of course, naming it Kennedy has made it quite an attractive climb. How about uh, Senator Kennedy? Is he going to join you? Uh, there is a good chance that he will, yes. After 50 years, this becomes the culmination, the final chapter of the Mount Kennedy-Yukon expedition. Wind is biting on my skin. As a doc filmmaker, when perhaps you're filming, filming a subject who may be reticent really to be on camera, it's a, it can definitely be, shall we say, a tricky situation because it's a, it's a fine balance of trying to get what you want as a filmmaker and as a storyteller uh, without perhaps, you know, uh, turning the person away from the project. If you know, in fact, that, you know, this guy's gold, or this person's gold, I want them to be my, my, my subject, but I have to kind of tread lightly because, you know, it happens. It happens in projects where a person decides that they either from the beginning they don't want to be a part of a project or, you know, worse, when you're deep into a project, somebody says, look, man, I, I'm not into this. I, I don't feel like I, I should be this, you know, for whatever reason, they no longer want to be a part of the project. Did you have conversations and discussions where you felt you really kind of needed to massage that relationship throughout to keep Bobby in the in the game and, 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 and working on the film with you? Yes. I don't think there was any point where Bob was like, well, screw this, I'm out. I think at a higher level, you know, we see so many doc films where there is like a central character who just ends up being kind of an asshole, right? <laughs> um, and I'm not throwing shade on those films because that's, I think it's necessary for the genre to to have those where you have characters that, you know, maybe at first they seem okay, they become despicable later on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, there are so many films that are like that, and I, I always wonder about the relationships that the director has with the talent. Totally. Um, well, we, quote unquote talent. Talent, like, right? <laughs> you can tell we come from a commercial world. <laughs> yeah, 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 and I just sometimes those can feel kind of exploitative f for me. You know, um, I don't want to make a film where the main character is pissed about what I made, right? And so that was really important for me. Um, throughout this entire project that Jim Whitaker like it, Bob Whitaker like it, and Leif Whitaker like it. Now, is does that make for the most compelling, hard-hitting, like deep-diving psychological documentary? No, 100% no. But um, that doesn't mean you still can't tell an awesome story, uh, entertain people, educate people, take them on a ride, um, make them laugh, make them cry. So that's kind of more my style, I think, at this point, or at least as I see my style emerging as a filmmaker. It's not the like attack thing. So um, Bob was, you know, Bob, Bob was uncomfortable with the idea of it, and he was worried about how I was going to portray him. But I tried to keep him very close to the process to show him, like, 
dude, like you can trust me on this. Like you'll, you'll get it eventually. Um, and I think he did, you know, and you know, in the film, we do make Bob out to look like a little bit of a jerk early on, but it really is a redemption story. The kind of closing of act two is it all kind of coming together with Bob's character and, um, you realize he's, he's like a pretty remarkable guy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about moving forward into the film. I'd love to hear a little bit about the actual logistics of filming something like a climb. Are you the filmmaker or, or, or the camera operators that you're working with, whoever the crew is for this, when you're out, when you're out in Mount Kennedy, have you trained yourselves prior to this? Of course, part of the part of the journey is we see Bob Bob training, right? But I'm curious, are you and or your crew, are you guys training for this? And what that looks like? And then really when you set out to film at Mount Kennedy, what's the preparation and what are the logistics of actually filming a climb like? Um, I trained super hard for, for the climb. Wow. Um, probably much harder than Bob did. <laughs> um <laughs> I was a, I was a bike racer for many years. And so like, I know how to train, you know, that was like, my life was like living and breathing bike racing for a while. So, um, I know what it takes to like, like perform on a, like a higher athletic level. I think, um, that wasn't really Bob's thing, but to his credit, he did, (laughs) he did put in the hours. Um, I did like, I did CrossFit, you know, like four or five times a week. I was running half marathons. I was running up and down like mountains. Um, doing a lot of weight training, running around with heavy packs. Like I was, I was very serious about it. Um, the, the crew was small. It was just me and one other guy. The other guy's name is Mikey Schaefer. He was one of the primary DPs on free solo. And Mikey is like a total mountain badass. So he's always shooting in crazy scenarios. So he doesn't like have to train for it because his life is like training for it. You know, he's like, you know, doing crazy routes out in Patagonia and, um, is just in shape. From a filmmaking perspective, the logistics of the shoot, we, because we were a small crew, we were shooting everything on Sony A7S1s. We didn't have a ton of gear. Um, we flew, we, you know, we flew to the mountain on a helicopter. So I was able to take, uh, you know, laptop, hard drives. I took a small generator so that we had power at the camp and we were dumping cards every night. Um, I was back up and like, you know, a main drive and two backups and um shot some of the stuff on the atmos but a lot of this stuff was just sony internal and you know these these are the tools these days that are they're relatively inexpensive and they're both durable and create an amazing picture so it really enables you to do a project like this without having to you know visualize crazy extensive logistics of stuff and big teams of people so it was relatively simple the the climb itself and in terms of where you guys were positioning yourselves throughout that climb for filming, how did that work? Were you guys on, on, on walkies or, you know, like where's your DP? Where are you? How were you doing this throughout the climb? Yeah. So we had two rope teams. We had, we had guides with us as well. So we had two guides, uh, two guides that were with us. Um, so the first rope was in, uh, they would change the order up, but it would be like, it was like Bob, Chris Kennedy, Leaf, and then their guide, um, uh, Brian. And then our, our rope was three people it was the guide, Rich, uh, Mikey Schaefer and myself. I was mainly shooting stills for the entire time. Uh, Mikey was shooting video. Um, we would, we do a lot of stopping and starting, you know, we'd stop, we'd go by them, we'd have them come by. Um, 
Yeah, like a lot of there's a lot of that. I mean, you know, when you're filming, you're like working two X's hard because you're having to like right. muscle up in front. Let me get back ahead of the you. shot. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was definitely it was definitely challenging. I think the most challenging thing about it was the um, I mean, obviously, the altitude is, is hard because once you get above, at least for me, once I'm above 7000 feet, I get pretty gassed. But um, it was super cold and it was super windy. And <laughs> so when you're working perfect conditions, buttons, you need to be able to. <laughs> take a glove off. Right. And, uh, yeah, just changing settings was, was hard. We didn't really change lenses either that much cause that would have been a disaster. So, um, but yeah, overall, I mean, you know, um, there's some things I would have done differently knowing, knowing now, but, uh, I think we did a pretty good job of, of capturing the stuff. Can you share with us something that you might've done differently? Yeah, I would have done the sound differently. And I would have had a better way to be able to see the um, image on the camera. We just shot through the viewfinders on them. But uh, it's so bright out there um, with the snow and the wind that you like. You need to figure out a different solution for how your eye interacts with the camera. Um, and then I would have done the sound a little differently. I would have used one of these super softies. They're like, a, it's like a boom cover for like a shotgun. Um, Rycote makes them. And there's something I found out about after we came off the mountain and they will like give you perfectly good sound in a 45 mile an hour wind. Wow. Uh, right. Right. And, and they're not like, they're not like a crazy big blimp. They're just like a very well-designed piece of kit that, that can handle the wind. Um, cause it was tricky for us to get good audio of the guys. And then the other thing I think I would have done is, um, you know, like I don't, you know, people hear director a lot of times and they think that's like the guy who like yells action and, tells people what to do, but, uh, I didn't really give much guidance or direction. I kind of wanted things to just unfold. There's a few things that I wish I would have just like maybe given them some, some notice on, you know, like, um, a couple moments they had that we kind of missed that I would have, I wish they would have just kind of waited for us, but I would have needed to communicate that to them. So let's shift our, our, our conversation a little bit to uh, funding on a film like this, in particular, something like the importance of partnerships and sponsorships. In a film like this, there, are, there may be nat natural and obvious fits. Um, there's obvious companies that might jump out. You know, there's apparel companies, outdoor gear companies. What's your general rule of thumb when you're working or reaching out to sponsorships? And maybe share with us a little bit about how you're reaching out to them, what you're using uh, as discussion points, what the materials are, that sort of thing. So what's basically your general overall all approach for sponsorships on a film like this? I think the reason we were able to get some money, well, I shouldn't say I think, I know the reason we were able to get some money early on is that Bob, the main character, actually had some really good relationships with these brands. And it can always seem a little like sketchy if your main character is like raising money for the film because then obviously you're like beholden right. somehow to not make them look like an asshole. <laughs> yeah, um, but that, yeah. <laughs> that wasn't really the case. Like Bob, Bob really wanted to go do the expedition. And so he reached out to uh, Timex Expedition, Rainier Beer, Sub Pop Records, Outdoor Research. Um, and then was able to get some gear sponsorships. Uh, Feathered Friends in Seattle donated like full-on expedition gear for us, which is amazing. Patagonia gave us stuff. Simon uh, gave some ice axes and some crampons. Um, we got some ski poles from a company named Lecky. So um, we we raised enough money to get the expedition paid for and to cover the expense of having Mikey, the DP, go along with us. Um, so flights and rate for him. 
But the reality is, is we we never really raised a ton of money on this project. And the way that we were able to keep it kind of like, uh, I mean, be able to do it was that I know how to do a lot of the stuff myself, you know, um, and uh, not to not to like downplay the role of other people that collaborated on this. I mean, Mikey, as a shooter on the mountain, was incredible. Um, I had a number of other friends that helped me out. My buddy Lou, who I work with a lot, shot a lot of the film uh, in Seattle. Um, and uh, Andrew Franks, the editor, was also like just instrumental in getting the story together with me. But you know, when you're doing a film, there's all these like little things you need to do. Maybe you need to tweak something before you export it. Like if I had to constantly go to someone and pay them to do all those little things, there's no way I could have done the film, right? Um, also, we weren't renting the gear. I owned all the equipment because I own a small production company and we're, you know, we've got up to date stuff. So um, I, I wish I had like a really good um, uh, like a, like framework of how to approach brands for funding money. But I mean, honestly, man, if you've got like a cool story and like you can create a, like a solid visual deck that like communicates how powerful the visuals are and how interesting the story is and why you're the person to tell that story, why you're uniquely positioned to tell that story and, and how you're going to do it in a way that, uh, that the brand will be able to use it, um, to their benefit. Then and that's kind of the key these days to being able to get brand support for projects. Um, and then, you know, it just like, it helps to be a really good filmmaker. <laughs> like you need to have stuff in your, in your portfolio that is like, that's totally badass so that people have to work with you, right? Like they can't ignore how talented you are. So there are companies uh, that we see in the film or companies' products, something like, for instance, outdoor research, right? In watching this, it almost seems like, dare I say, product placement, right? So I'm curious, and this, and that may not may not have been the case at all, and you, and you can obviously let me know about that. I'm curious what you're feeling uh, generally is about something like this in documentary film, because we're starting to see a bit more of this, this idea of product placement in, in nonfiction. Yeah, I mean, the kind of amazing thing for us is that all these brands gave us money with no strings attached, so... So uh, the product placement was was not intentional. It just so happens that like you're wearing a bright red feather friends jacket and a, <laughs> a completely white glacier that thing's gonna pop, right? Like yeah, um, yeah. No, we 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 did not uh, place any products with intention. We wore the stuff that we were given um, because it's like totally badass gear, uh, both from OR and outdoor research. So um, yeah, I mean, you know, like. The term doc is used so loosely these days. We we just have so many new types of content that are like adventure-based outdoor films that are not necessarily like a documentary, but um, they are documenting something. They're documenting an athletic pursuit, you know, a personality. And um, I mean, I have no problem with product placement being put in that stuff. Like if it's a good story and you're not like overtly trying to sell the product, then why not? It's a it's a way to fund the work that fund you're doing. Fund your damn film. Yeah. <laughs> we all need that as doc filmmakers. Where and how can we see Return to Mount Kennedy? MountKennedy.com is our website. If you go there, it's got the links to all the major stores. Yeah, iTunes, Amazon, uh, Vudu, Fandango, Xbox, all the stuff. Uh, you can, anywhere you get your content, they will have it. Uh, we have uh, Instagram at uh, Mount Kennedy Film, which we use to like roll out a lot of the cool stuff that we didn't get to fit into the into the picture itself. We like under some crazy archival footage in the process of putting the film together and like crazy photos. So, 
uh, things that are both from the grunge world and from the Kennedy family um, that we like to roll out on Instagram as well as like a secondary thing. As we wrap up here, Eric, what's something that you feel like maybe I missed in this that you want doc filmmakers to know? And, and whether it's about working with subjects, whether it's working about working with sponsorships, what's something you feel like, you know what, if you're making your first doc film, this is, this is something you should know about doc filmmaking or really about leading a doc life. The thing that I think I've screwed up on this film is the marketing angle. <laughs> I know that sounds bad because we actually are we we actually have some some really great things going for us. REI came on as a partner um, once the film was completed, and they've been basically like marketing the film to their users. They have 18 million members of the REI co-op, so it's like it's kind of the perfect demographic for us. Um, but having said that, I think that that you can't under like play how important it is as filmmakers these days to also be marketing powerhouses. And it's kind of depressing, but it's true. Like you need to early on collect every single email you can from every single person that engages with the process so that you can go sell the thing to them later on, right? Like it's a grind to get the thing out once it once it like hits the world. Um, and that's because there are just so many freaking good films these days, right? Like it just kind of gets lost in the in the amount of content that's available. So one thing I would probably change about how I did this is um, I would almost like start like with the marketing plan and think through a lot of that stuff um, from day one, like before the cameras even roll, which seems crazy, but um, prudent, I think, at this point. Uh, and But, you know, having said that, like this is my first feature documentary. So what's the point of doing these things if you're not learning? Right? Like, you <laughs> right. do these, so the next one is better. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll know a lot of that stuff next time. Yeah, like in terms of lifestyle um it's not yeah it's not an easy life like i i have a i have a wife and a three-year-old and a mortgage and um you know i have commercial work that i'm lucky enough to have to uh to keep me going and, and support my family and my lifestyle um i i think that i think that it's really important to think of it as craft to constantly be em employing your skills right like i think people that they see documentary films and they don't have a filmmaking background and they think that's what I want to do. And I had that same thought and I had that thought 15 years ago and now I've worked every day for 15 years to try to like hone the skills and be as good at this as I can. So, um, you know, it's like, like training for climbing a mountain every day. You just need to do something to, to enhance your craft and, and be better at it, whether that's commercial work or it's documentary work at all. It all kind of coalesces in, in building up your skill set. So, I know that's kind of the way I think about it, that every every project is a stepping stone to the next thing. You're never going to arrive, you know. I mean, maybe you will. Who knows? I haven't yet. Nobody's, like, calling me and asking me to direct Netflix serial docs. But uh, who knows? It could happen. We've been speaking with documentary commercial filmmaker Eric Becker, and his current film is Return to Mount Kennedy. Eric, thank you so much for coming on to The Documentary Life today. It's been a great conversation. Chris, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Don't forget, we'd love to have you join us in the Documentary Academy. Come and take a look at how we can help you make your best documentary film at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. That's thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.